Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And also turn in the back of your hymnals to page 937. Now, we're going over two sections in chapter 29 on page 937, but at the beginning of the message, I'm only reading the first section. Let's first read the word of the Lord. This is God's holy and infallible word, Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing... He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, From now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, section 3. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to, to declare his word of institution to the people to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to an holy use, and to make and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also them, themselves to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. Let's pray together. We ask, O Sovereign God, O Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word as we study it. Help us also to to study um, this confession, which was given to us by godly men of the church. Help us to understand this blessed, wonderful gift, this blessed, wonderful sacrament of the Lord's Supper. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Um, Taking of the Lord's Supper is something that is a weighty thing. It's not something that should be done lightly. And there have been mistakes in the church historically, and there have been mistakes in the modern church as well, of an understanding of the nature of, of the elements and by the nature of this wrong understanding of what happens when someone blesses the elements there's been mistakes of how they are not treated in a proper fashion one of the worst things possible is the adoration and worship of the bread and wine that's something that's not found and instructed in holy scripture but we'll look a little bit more of that later section three says that gospel ministers are to declare his word of institution to the people. Again, what is a word of institution? Uh, You've noticed probably every time that you've been in an OPC church and take the Lord's Supper, 
someone always reads a passage of Scripture concerning the Lord's Supper before partaking. That's considered a word of institution. One example is what we just read there in Matthew 26, 26 and following. That is one of the cases of a word of institution. Now, another place that is often used is 1 Corinthians 11. But we would say, well, that's not the words of Jesus directly. That's the words of Paul, isn't it? Well, Paul's citing what Jesus said. So it's, yes, it, that's clearly words of institution given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 as well. Um, the word instituted means founded, established, or inaugurated. And that's what happened here in Matthew 26, 26 and following. Jesus established this practice. It was something that was the Passover, Jesus being the Passover lamb, that this Lord's Supper has, has overtaken, you could say, the practice of the Lord's Supper. I mean, the, the practice of um, the uh, Passover. Jesus is our Passover, therefore he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That, that's why we don't practice Passover anymore, because we have this new blessed Lord's Supper that is to be done instead. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he commanded that it be done in his church, saying... Do this in remembrance of me. We, take, we see that there and also in Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. So in addition to his declaring his word of institution to the people, the minister is to bless the elements of bread and wine and thereby set them apart from a common to an holy use. Section 3 again. Now, when a minister takes these elements, he takes the bread and he blesses and he prays to God that he would bless these elements what happens to the elements? Um, I'm skipping ahead to what we're going to look at later, but section 5 tells us that in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine, as they were before. That's what happens. They remain bread and wine. Now, but does that mean that there is no true spiritual significance in what happens? In, does the blessing mean nothing? I would cite a very beautiful section in the, uh, the, what's called the Directory of Worship. And you, you probably remember hearing me say these words. And this is what's included in our Directory of Worship. It's there in your outline. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, it said, It is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but it is a remembrance of the once-for-all sacrifice of himself in his death for our sins. Nor is it a mere memorial to Christ's sacrifice. It's not just a remembrance only. It says that it is a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected, exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit and through faith. So if your Catholic friends say, you just have a remembrance only, don't you? You would say, no, we truly spiritually feed upon the resurrected, exalted Jesus Christ. And you could say that. So when a minister prays for God's blessing, the bread and wine, that's what we're talking about. That's what, ha that's what we believe. We believe that there's a true spiritual <coughs> blessing that we pray for. We don't believe in transubstantiation. However, 
we are convinced that the wine and the bread is the most precious, magnificent, blessed wine and bread that we can partake of in this life. It truly is the most magnificent feast that we could have to nourish our souls, this Holy Lord's Supper. And we believe that by faith. Section 3 goes on to say that the minister is to take and break the bread and take, to take the cup and they communicating also themselves, which means giving communion to themselves, to give both to the communicants. Now you might say this little statement here is pretty straightforward, right? The minister is communicating to himself. He's, he's giving the, the elements to himself because he's taking communion along with the, with the congregation. Well, that's, that's not all we can derive from this. Now, I want you to... I know this is probably a multi-level logical conclusion, but I want you to think of it this way. This is a very weighty warning for a minister. The words of the directory of worship says, we are not to partake if we're living impenitently. Um, we are only to partake if we're seeking to walk in godliness before the Lord. If a minister is not, he also should not approach the holy table of the Lord. So if we're referring to Westminster Confession of Faith 29, 3, if a minister cannot in good conscience partake of the Lord's Supper himself, I would argue that he should not even administer it. Uh, what would that mean? What would that look like? Um, the minister probably should stop and tell the congregation, say, brothers and sisters, I, I cannot administer the Lord's Supper next Sunday because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not repentant of a, of a particular sin. And he needs to basically confess his sin to the congregation. And for a time, he might need to hold off partaking the Lord's Supper. Now, I, I haven't heard of that being done in a particular church that would take a lot of humility for the minister, but I do think that it would be the best absolute thing for that, that minister. Because if he takes an unworthy manner, just because he's too ashamed not to, to withhold partaking, uh, I think that he would be making the absolute wrong decision. Section 3 <clears throat> closes by saying, The minister is to give the bread and wine to none uh, who are not then present in the congregation. Now, you might think of this as what goes on in the Roman system where a priest goes to someone's house or goes to the nursing home or goes to someone else and, and has a little, um, a little container where he opens it up and he gives the, the, the Eucharist to the individual while they're ill and they can't go to Mass. Or we also have something called Eucharistic ministers. Um, I don't know if there's a they would consider that an ordination service they give to a Eucharistic minister, but most of us would consider them sort of like lay people uh, from our standard of what we think of as ordination. Now, absolutely, I think that practice of going out to people who are ill and sick and at home, is, it's motivated by love. They think it's important. They think it's, it's, it's one of the most loving, kind things you could do to someone who's ill and sick, but I don't believe... It is dictated by Scripture. There are two passages that we want to look at here. The first passage is Acts 20, starting in verse 7. Let's uh, 
look at Acts 20, verse 7. Acts 20, verse 7 is a famous passage, but you, you, you probably just think of it a, a concerning a miraculous event that happened, but there's more to it than that. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, that's the congregation, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Um, there were many... Lamps in the upper room where, they, where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down uh, from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Then he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talking with them a long while until daybreak, and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. A couple of things in this, in this text. This is a mandate of why we're not Seventh-day Adventists. What day was the worship service? What day was the Lord's Supper? First day of the week, verse 7. The second thing is that when they came to eat the Lord's Supper, they were all gathered together. So that's a mandate, all getting together, being gathered together to partake the Lord's Supper. Another passage that we could look at, and we're not going to turn there, but it's, in a, uh, it's when Paul is actually rebuking the Corinthian church for taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion where they were doing so selfishly. They weren't waiting for one another. They were... Um, being selfish, you could say, and taking it in an irreverent fashion. But Paul says that they would all meet together to partake. They were meeting together. So in Acts 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, 20, both passages mention the congregations meeting together to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, what do we do if we have someone who's disabled to the point where they can't get to church, they're bedridden for years, and they're asking the session, saying, I would love to partake the Lord's Supper. Maybe even someone who's on hospice. And they want to partake the Lord's Supper one more time before they pass from this life. Is that impossible? One of my seminary professors pointed this out. He said, according to the Westminster Confession, you're not to give the sacrament to anyone unless they're present in the congregation. Well, here's a, here's a way you could do it. Bring the congregation to them. You could have a good portion of the congregation, especially in a smaller church. Bring the, you could bring the, the congregation to their house and have a little worship service, um, sing, read scripture, and have the Lord's Supper together. And I still, I would argue that that is not as what's called a private mass. The private mass was something, well, especially in the Catholic Church, that's something you pay for to have a, a special private mass so you can get uh, maybe a hundred or a thousand years less purgatory for your loved one. And we don't believe in that. Um, now you might say that doing a, a worship service at someone's home for the Lord's Supper sounds like a lot of trouble. But if you were someone who loved the Lord and loved the church and you hadn't had the Lord's Supper in two to three years, you might be highly, that, I hope you would find that highly undesirable if you were put in, that, in, that, in those shoes. 
Section 4, again, it discourages private masses or the receiving of this sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to people. So the beginning of that section 4 is talking about here, um, it's discouraging, again, discouraging this, administering this sacrament to individuals who are sick or isolated here. But the mention of this denial of the cup to the people, I think that is a practice that goes way back. Uh, and for some of you who've been in the Catholic Church, I remember being in the Catholic Church for many years, and honestly, I've partaken the Lord's Supper in the Catholic Church for, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing uh, maybe 10 years, but not, not uh, constantly. But I don't remember ever taking a sip of the cup. Because very often in the Catholic Church, the ministers, or the priest, he only gives the Eucharist or the, the, uh, the bread, the wafer, to people, and everyone goes back and sits down. And, of course, he always drinks of the cup. And on occasion, you see someone off to the side with a cup, and some people go there. But the vast majority of the people don't ever partake of the cup. That's what's mentioned here. Denial of the cup to the people. Section 4 says also worshiping the elements or lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and the reserving of them for pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Now we shouldn't bow down and worship and praise the elements. Um, the reason is, is because we don't believe in what's called transubstantiation. We don't believe that the elements actually become the, the body and blood of Jesus. We believe they have spiritual value and they're, not, they're to be treated as holy. They've been set apart for a holy use, but they're not transformed into the body and blood of, of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's a logical conclusion to worship them if you do believe in transubstantiation. Now, this mentioning of reserving them for pretended religious use. Now, that speaks to the Roman Catholic use of what they would call the Eucharistic temple, or ta I'm sorry, tabernacle. Perhaps you've seen it if you've been in the Catholic Church. It's, it's actually sometimes very beautiful. It's a, it looks like a little miniature house, and it's set aside and has little doors. And I think during the Mass, the priest takes the sacrament out of there and he closes them up again. By the way, supposedly there's uh, some Catholic law about when the church is closed, they have to lock it up so that the, 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 uh, the sacrament is not um, abused. But this is uh, according to Catholic.com. The tabernacle is a liturgical uh, furnishing used to house the Eucharist outside of Mass. This provides a location where the Eucharist can be kept for what? The adoration, in other words, worshiping that bread for of the faithful and for later use, distributing to the sick. It also prevents the profanation of the Eucharist. In other words, regulations about locking it up, and it, it has to be something that can't be moved. It's attached to the church wall. Now, in conclusion, where do we go with this? We want a balanced view. We need the Scripture to instruct us how to understand these elements. The Scripture does not teach that it becomes actually the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. 
At the same time, this is not just a remembrance. We should be convinced that when a minister prays for the blessing of these elements and it gives them unto you, this is the most blessed, most magnificent meal that you'll have in this life. Because there's the true presence of Jesus Christ. When we partake, we are partaking of these sacraments prayerfully. We're feeding upon the crucified, resurrected, exalted Jesus Christ. But in order to do so, you have to first have faith and believe and trust that He is your Savior. Because otherwise you are not to partake. Let's pray together. We ask, O Father, that you would help us in growing in our understanding of this holy sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that we would partake in faith, that we would truly trust and believe that these sacraments, this bread and this wine, is a true blessing and nourishment for our souls, that it is truly the most magnificent feast that we could partake of in this life. And help us, we pray, that by faith that we would believe and trust and receive salvation through our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. That through the word, the sacraments, and the prayer, we would all feed upon the crucified, resurrected, exalted Jesus Christ. And grow in faith, and grow in holiness, and grow in assurance that we would exalt and believe in Him, and that we would bear forth much fruit some 30, some 60, and some even a hundredfold. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, stand and sing our closing hymn. 196, At the Lamb's High Feast we sing. Let's stand and sing 196.